Being a parent is difficult. Having a relationship is difficult. Working is difficult. Sometimes all these things require shifts to happen in order to make them sustainable. Welcome back again to Startup Dad, the podcast where we dive deep into the lives of dads who are also leaders in the world of startups. I'm your host, Adam Fishman. And in this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Buster Benson, principal product manager at Medium, founder of 750 Words, and best-selling author of the book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. Buster and I talk about a lot of things. The decision behind joining and leaving several companies in pursuit of being a better father, and more focused as a dad. Starting a family while being broke, with no health insurance, home birthing, having a kid who doesn't sleep for more than 30 minutes at a time, and more. One topic we go really deep on is Buster's separation and eventual divorce from his partner, how to talk to your kids about divorce, and how he's managed through it while maintaining an amicable relationship with his ex and connection to his kids. Buster is an incredibly thoughtful and caring person, and I'm really glad I got the chance to have this candid conversation with him. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome. I am excited to welcome someone to the program. He has had a storied career as both a creator and a technology person. He's been a developer at Amazon, founded several companies, is an engineer and a PM at Twitter, product manager at Slack and Patreon. That's where I met him. Is a published author. Are we a best-selling author yet? I'm not sure. Depends. Um, Everyone's a best-selling author if you... Just turn the list enough. Yes. If you if you squint hard enough, you can you can see yeah. an author of the book Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. And currently back working, it sounds like, at his company, 750 Words, that he started a long time ago, over a decade ago in 2009. So I'm excited to welcome Buster Benson. Buster, thank you for joining. Super excited to have you here. I'm excited cool. to be here too. Thanks for inviting me to this. Awesome. I'm excited to talk about being a dad. <laughs> awesome. So I want to start with a little bit more about your background. So obviously I gave sort of the professional highlights, but tell me a little bit more about you. Tell me about life growing up. Where are you from originally? You know, how'd you get out to the Bay Area? Yeah. You know, I'm old, so this could be a long story, but <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it brief. Let's see. I grew up in Southern California in Irvine. My dream was to, at first, to be a genetic biologist until I got accepted into Berkeley and started learning about this and realized it was going too slowly for my taste. And I switched to creative writing and liberal arts in general and transferred up to Seattle, Washington, UW, and got my degree there. At that time, it was 1998. So Amazon was just around the corner. And I thought, you know, at first I was like, I'll be an editor, but no, there was none of those jobs available. So I, I got a job at customer support on the night shift, answering calls and emails and slowly worked my way up into becoming a trainer and becoming a developer because nobody was actually schooled in engineering at the time. I was just, everyone was self-taught and became, sort of learned my chops that way. Decided that I wanted to start my own company after about five years started a company called Robot Co-op, which had a couple of websites, one of them being 43 Things, which is about making a list of your goals and sort of creating a community around goals. It was early blogging days, so everyone just needed 
So it's like a way to like fix the blank slate problem of not knowing what to write about on the internet. It's like we can write about what we want to do with our lives. And hopped from that to, you know, I started an art gallery in a bar in Seattle. I was trying, I was like my first attempt to escape the tech world. I was sort of burned out, but then realized that was even harder than what I had been doing. <laughs> Went back to doing easy startups, had a couple more. Then I had my first kid. It was 2010 and I was exhausted. We were super poor because had no health insurance, no income for many years, and decided to do a regular job with health insurance. So came down to San Francisco, worked at Twitter for three years on the analytics team, and built a team there to like sort of help small businesses become better using Twitter, learning about like what works, what doesn't work, and then went to Slack, where I built the platform team there. And so I really love these early companies, really like being involved in both building the product and building the team. And then went to Patreon for a bit and sort of came to a head with like having another child, having a book deal and having a full-time job and trying to like figure out what do I want to do with my life? And I had my second sort of like realization that I should maybe simplify and left Patreon to finish the book and raise kids. And then luckily, you know, maybe not luckily for most perspectives, but when the pandemic hit, you know, it sort of gave me time to refocus on family, on like working, you know, from home and building on smaller businesses like 750 words that have sustained me. So, you know, the arc of my career has really been sort of this pursuit of trying to use technology and trying to use what we know about the world to like improve lives, improve my life, improve other people's lives, whether it's through like working better or expressing yourself better or like making a living off of what you're doing. These things are all sort of what has been driving me towards something. And that's where I am now. I don't really know what is on the horizon, but doing yeah. my best to just like <laughs> keep it all together. That Yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> it's funny that you've gone through these cycles of like kind of running towards technology companies, running away from technology companies, like a few sort of cycles. Really interesting what you said about when you had your first kid and you had no income and no health insurance and you were really poor living in Seattle. A couple of things that I'm curious about is tell me about the decision to start a family or maybe there wasn't one. Sometimes that happens too. Mm -hmm. And then also what was it like not having an income health insurance and raising a small baby that needs so much of those things? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I actually never wanted kids. <laughs> when I was growing up, I thought having kids was like giving up. You know, like I, I'm going to mm. pass the buck to the next generation. I'm not going to do anything good in my life. So I got to make another generation. Hopefully they can. That was like my, you know, ignorant, useful perspective mm -hmm. on this. But, you know, actually what ended up happening was, you know, until I met somebody where the idea of having a kid became possible, as soon as that happened, it was an instant switch. <laughs> so I was like, oh, never mind. This is another challenge. It's not the end of ambition, you know. It's mm -hmm. the beginning of sort of connecting myself to the world in a you know a more holistic way, I think. And so it was like a conversion for me <laughs> moment where I was like, oh yeah, it's not what I thought it was. And so we did plan to have. I got married in yeah 2008, mm -hmm. and our first kid was born in 2010. And so we were planning it. And yes, like you said, I was working you know on my own company at the time, and my income was really low, had no health insurance. And so when we decided to have a child, the question was like, well, how much is it going to cost to have a child? Yeah. And actually, that was an instrumental part of deciding to at least try to have a home birth. And because a home birth 
in Seattle, you hire a, a midwife and a doula and you can do it for under $10,000, like to have a home birth. Mm. Like going to the hospital is, you know, at least $30,000. Yeah. So that was a big part of our consideration. Like he was born in the bedroom of the loft that we lived in at the time in Seattle. Luckily, no complications happened. Otherwise we would have ended up there anyway. But yeah, we were lucky on that. And yeah, we embraced it at the time. Like it was, you know, this is, we're humans. This we're made to, to procreate. Like hopefully if everything goes right, best case scenario is that this is okay. And, you know, read a billion books about home birth and parenting and pregnancy and felt prepared for it. And, you know, midwives and doulas are really great helps along the way there too. So yeah, it yeah. worked out, but yeah, the shock of like the checkups and all these things where you did have to go to the doctor, like a thousand dollar bill here, $2,000 bill there. Mm -hmm. Like the doctors don't even tell you that they're happening until you get the bill in the mail. That kind of stuff was a little bit stressful. And eventually that combined with the fact that like we were both working at the time, couldn't afford health, child care, and the stress levels just started building on top of each other. And we realized like, why not take an easier path for a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Was your second kid a home birth too, or did you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He was also okay. a home birth, but we had health insurance at that point. And we're like, we knew a lot more about what yep. to expect. And yeah, we did more things like hiring a sleep trainer and that kind of thing mm. <laughs> to avoid all the mm -hmm. other problems that can happen. <laughs> yeah. Did you become part of like a, a home birth, like community? I know that that's a fairly tight knit community of, of people kind of like sharing the trials and tribulations and celebrations with each other. Was that something you yeah, and, and your, your partner got into? Yeah. Yeah. We took a home birthing class in Seattle from a woman named Penny Simpkin, who was like an early midwife pioneer up there mm -hmm. and has trained like many years and decades of midwives and doulas up there. And so we met a lot of other parents that were all having babies in the same months that we were. And when I was just up in Seattle this last summer, like we hung out with a couple of them and like our kids, like they were born a month apart or three weeks apart and haven't seen each other much in the last 10 years, but they're still like instantly like bonded on some weird level. <laughs> so that's mm -hmm. really fun to, to see. And yeah, there's a bunch of people we still keep in touch with through that. That's great. I, I once went to a home birthing, well, it was a party here in Berkeley that turned out almost all the guests were from their home birthing group, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was a bit of the odd man out at this party because <laughs> I didn't have a particular experience with that topic, but they were all wonderful people. So I'm glad that you could reconnect with us folks too, many years later. Yeah. And there's such a variety of experiences, even within that group too. Like, you know, not all of them had home births and you know, some of them. It's interesting and also challenging sometimes to compare mm -hmm. yourself to other people. <laughs> so yeah. Everyone has different experiences and different yeah. things that they want to emphasize, different things that they feel secure and secure about. Cool. Tell me about your kids a little bit. You've got a pretty big spread between the two of them. You've got a seventh grader and a first grader. So that's pretty interesting mm -hmm. ends of the spectrum there. Yeah. Two boys. Nico was born in 2010. So 12 years old now, entering seventh grade. He's like me. He's very like sort of sensitive and shy and has a deep inner life and like, has everything in his head. It's got to pull things out of him. Mm -hmm. Louis is the six-year-old and he's more like my ex, my partner, more extroverted, likes to get a, you know rowdy and excited and screams a lot and stomps around. And so yeah. it's, been, it's been fun to have two boys that are sort of on opposite like sort of personality <laughs> spectrum and yeah but they were they were far apart because 
having a kid was so hard. Like going through those first few years, Nico didn't sleep for three years for more than an hour and a half. Wow. So like getting him to nap took an hour and a half to get a th- half an hour nap, that kind of thing. And so it wasn't until he was five that he were even entertained the possibility of having another child. <laughs> and when, when it happened, I was like, you know, this could break us. This could be the end. If we have another kid, it could be the end of our marriage. And, you know, Louis is now six and I separated from Kellyanne about when he was about four. So it did sort of, there was just, you know, it's a confluence of things. I'm not going to say that that's the kid's fault ever, but like, sure. it's just, you know, being a parent is difficult. Having a relationship is difficult. Working is difficult. Sometimes all these things require shifts to happen in order to make them sustainable. We're, we're yeah. still very amicable as partners and co-parents and we work together in this business, but yeah, that's just where it ended up. Yeah. I think that's one thing that folks don't tend to talk very much about is, you know, everything you see about people and their kids is sort of, you know, fancy Instagram photos and like the best 5% of someone's life they put on the internet. So you get this perspective that like everything is amazing all the time. And, you know, hearing you say we waited so long to have our second kid because parenting is really hard and our first kid didn't sleep for the first three years. I mean, I cannot even imagine the exhaustion and you can never be at your best, right? When you've only slept a little bit mm. the same with your kid, right? So that's really quite a big thing, right? To basically have to push off having another kid because you're just not sure if you're going to survive it. You know? mm-hmm. When you're sleep deprived, <laughs> yeah, survival is really the fear. <laughs> it's like, am I going to make it through the day? Like, is there any chance? Yeah, There were definitely weeks upon weeks of that feeling of just being so tired that it's painful, <laughs> right? And yeah. then they go into work and be like, oh, some, a completely different world with different problems is is coming yeah. in and having to sort of switch off other parts. And the transition from these different worlds is, is a lot, it's draining. And yeah, definitely contributed yeah. to a lot of burnout for me over time. Yeah. I remember neither one of our kids slept particularly well after they were born, not for three years, but certainly not for several months. And I remember with our daughter, who was our oldest and our first time doing it, the sun would start to go down. And my wife and I would get literal anxiety about what that night was going to be like, because we knew it was just going to be a struggle until the sun came up again the next morning. And that continued for a while. So it's just a thing that I do wish more people talked about a little bit, because you're not the only one whose kid probably didn't sleep for the first three (laughs) years, but no one talks about it. So I'm glad you are. I wanted to transition a little bit and talk about What are some of the earliest memories you have of becoming a father? I mean, clearly home birth is probably pretty memorable. But yeah, tell me a little bit about some of the earliest things you remember about your kids when they were really young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Home birth was, you know, both of Kellyanne's births happened, you know, pretty quickly relatively to most stories. It wasn't one of those ones that dragged on for 24 or 48 hours. Like as soon as, you know, the contractions were like within, you know, four minutes apart or something. He was born three hours later so quickly that I think one of the stories was like she was, you know, having contractions and she was getting thirsty. So she asked like our friend to go get her another like lemonade with like fresh lemon in it. She was very specific about like what was in the water and like the friend went downstairs and got the lemonade and by the time she came back up, the baby was born. (laughs) Nico was born. And (laughs) she's like, okay, well that happened. And I remember holding him and... He was just purple and white and his head was all like misshapen. I was like, this is some kind of alien creature. Like, what is, 
what am I holding? It was definitely like not a moment of like, oh, recognition and instant love. It was just like, what is this? What is happening? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, it wasn't like a few minutes later, he like color came to him, you know. So it was like, okay, that's a human, definitely. Okay, but at mm-hmm. first I wasn't so sure. Yeah. And we were all in on like, you know, attachment parenting and sleeping with him in the bed and like all these things. He was our world for a, a good chunk of time. And it was just like this surreal experience of like sort of being half in dreamland half in some other universe for a while and you know i think that was a thing that we wanted and treasured at the time that was the experience it felt very sort of like sacred and like you were participating in this thing that's bigger than like the surface of things that we normally sort of deal with in our daily lives so I appreciated the opportunity to have that and to take a lot of time off. Was it the same with Louis or was it different sort of emotions and reactions and things like that? It was similar in some of the details, like being able to take a lot of time off. I think I took a couple months off and just being able to really get to know this new human. But I knew what was happening this time. And I also knew what to expect. And I, I, it wasn't like everything, every single time he like looked weird, I would look it up in like my book of parenting, you know, <laughs> things that can go wrong as a parent like is this is yeah take him to, to the hospital is he is he really gonna is he gonna survive it's more like oh yeah that guy's resilient he'll make it and planning ahead around things like sleep training and buying all the white noise machines and sort of having walls between us because like when nico was born it was just we were in a studio apartment there were no walls like oh. we would go to bed and we would just like turn all the lights off in the house and like whisper to each other over candlelight and like this second time with Louis, like there's walls, there's doors, there's white noise machines, there's camera. <laughs> so that was different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, where, like which gadgets to buy and which ones definitely not to buy. What are some of the things that were sort of most surprising to you that you discovered as a dad? Maybe things about yourself, your partner, your kids. Like what was something that like they don't tell you in a book? I mean, you just kind of had to figure it out for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I read so many books. A lot of it actually came more naturally to me than I thought it would. I tend to over prepare for things. So I did read a lot of pregnancy books and parenting books and all of them. But to a point, I realized that parenting is not about really raising a kid. It's about not harming them. (laughs) It's about creating a space where they can feel loved and supported and sort of acknowledged and seen but you don't have to teach them much. Like they teach themselves almost everything. And that was surprising to me. It was like, I don't have to like have flashcards and sounds and like do all these things that these you know parents tend to do, like to teach them things. It was more about like, let's expose him to things, watch them sort of see what grabs their attention and let them process it and sort of let that happen. And that was all big relief for me because, well, you know, I would have been fine with like the overprepared, teach them everything kind of approach. But at the end of the day, you know, when things did get difficult and burnout happened, like let's just make sure that they feel loved, that they feel, you know, supported, that they know that we're listening to them and the rest is going to be fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't have to prevent or accelerate or catalyze things. And as soon as we, I got into that mode, it's been a lot easier for me to to, to do that. Yeah. It feels natural. It feels like I'm not studying for a test or anything. Right? I have right. to like be the best parent possible. That's interesting. I think it can be really hard 
because there's a lot of external pressure, right? You know, people who are doing the flashcards and doing the baby Einstein videos and, you know, speaking in three languages to their kids or whatever. And we tend to have, at least in the Bay Area where you and I both live, there's a lot of very high achieving parents who have very high expectations for their kids at a young age. So I think it's a good perspective to have though, that your job is to just kind of be the foundation, provide the basic stability and foundation that your kids need, and then let them use that as the jumping off platform to explore the world and then help them pursue the things that they're passionate about and stuff like that. Yeah. That way they yeah. get to be kids. Yeah, you know? exactly. And the other thing is like, you know, when a lot of the world is designed to address the anxieties of parents, like if you go to a doctor, you're like, I'm worried about this. I'm they will supply you with new methods, new things, new medications, new strategies, mm -hmm. you know, forever. I think that the world is, is very like supportive of that, like sort of high achieving parent and sort of letting go of some of that is sometimes nerve wracking because you could be, what if I'm wrong? What if like, this is it? <laughs> what if I'm actually neglecting them in some way? But in reality, it doesn't ever feel like that because you're there. Yeah, you're there. Yeah, you're paying attention. But yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's yeah. a lot of advice that, to challenge that if you're not that sure mm -hmm. about yourself. And I find that kids are really good as they get older. They're really good at letting you know when you need to do something differently. My kids mm -hmm. will come and say, "Dad, I want you to spend a little bit more time with me if I'm like doing something else mm -hmm. or whatever." And I'm like, "Okay, great." You're telling me you need something, you know, let's go build some Legos or do whatever. So yeah, kids are pretty smart <laughs> if yeah. you leave them to their own devices. So in your parenting journey, I know you said you read a lot of books and I know in your professional life, one of the journeys in tech probably developed a bunch of frameworks for professional life. Do you have mm -hmm. any personal frameworks for parenting or any sort of guardrails that you've realized are important things to fall back on? Yeah, I love frameworks. I think, you know, <laughs> that's part of how I see the world is, is through frameworks. With parenting, I think, you know, the one that I just mentioned around just creating a safe space, like a, a place where even when things go wrong, at least they don't feel abandoned. They don't feel like, you know, they're being left to their, you know, own fallout from whatever is happening. That's definitely the foundational framework that I have. There's a lot of other ones that I apply specifically to Nico or to Louis because I see them differently. Like I said, he needs me to pull information out of him. So creating yeah. environments where I can ask questions, but not like put them on the spot and say like, you have to answer this now, but just like every night you can ask questions and they could be as weird as you want. And just like, just let that be a tradition so they can think ahead and think, okay, well, tomorrow night I want to ask this question has been important. Whereas Louis, he will bombard you with questions. So it's not a problem to, to, to like just to create blurts out whatever's coming to mind. <laughs> yeah. For Louis, it's more like, you know, can we be like snuggle and cozy together and not have mm -hmm. to talk about things? Can we just enjoy like reading a book together? Can we enjoy, you know, eating food together, that kind of stuff that is more sort of experiential. Like, so I think my frameworks are tailored to the personalities of the kids. Another one is, this might be related to the other ones, but I don't try to understand them fully. I don't try to get ahead of their own description of themselves. Like, you know, there are lots of ways to diagnose kids with different kinds of problems, whether it's what they're eating or whether they're like have stomach issues or whether they are 
we're learning to read slowly or learning to write slowly or not drawing as much, or there's just like this world of diagnoses out there. And I've intentionally tried to avoid diagnosing things. This is a controversial one, I think, even with my ex, like, you know, where she leans more towards like the diagnosing of them. I'll be like, mm -hmm. well, you know, I am more interested in like, do they feel like they need support? If they feel like they mm -hmm. need support, then we can go, for example, like Nico recently said, like, I think I have ADHD. And I was like, well, what makes you think that? Do you want to get tested for this? Do you want, do you need more support for this stuff? And, you know, I could try to figure this out on my own or say that's important for me to know more than it's important for him to know. But in general, I just let him, like, if he feels like there's something that he wants to understand about himself more specifically or in a more nuanced way, we have tools and you know, doctors and people that can help us, especially at his age. I feel like I'm not going to try to force him to label himself in these different ways unless it's going to help him directly. That's really interesting because I think it's really interesting that you're able to kind of resist that temptation because society wants to label and get you to diagnose. They want to diagnose your kids. And so it's really impressive that you've been able to kind of resist that. And especially you mentioned in conflict with your partner or your former partner, your co-parent mm -hmm. currently. I want to get into that a little bit too. So I do think you have a really interesting perspective because, you know, you separated from your partner a few years ago. Your kids were, what, four and 10 maybe when that happened, mm -hmm. thereabouts, which, you know, it's their young, impressionable age. And I think there's a lot of people who would be faced with that decision-making and choose not to do that, right? Choose to kind of stay in a situation that wasn't, entirely working out. Society still puts a lot of pressure on people for that. So tell me about that process. How did that go? You know, <laughs> up and down. It's definitely a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, not bad. I'll bet. Yeah. So here's a part I'll tell. I was like, it wasn't a quick decision. I think even before, you know, Louis was born in 2016, we knew that there were like, I thought that there were possible like outcomes that could lead this way. And you know, when you're not sleeping, when you have another like child around, like getting out of this constantly reactive parenting tactical mode is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So we had therapy, we had, you know, joint therapy for years working on these things. If so we also have very different communication styles and tend to get in the same kind of dynamic that you know, a lot of couples do, like one person is avoidant, one person is anxious, and this sort of spins into all of your, all of your problems, all your uh, challenging conversations and that kind of stuff. So we were well, well aware of that. We knew what they were. We knew when they were happening. And the question is like, can we turn this around? Can we like find ways to repair, you know, difficulties when they happen or are we losing our ability to repair? So by the time we did decide to separate, it was basically like, okay, we were co-parents, you know, there was the romantic relationship. There was the working relationship because we had the business together. There was the financial you know, relationship. Of like owning a house together and that kind of stuff. It came down to like, okay, is it possible to save the co-parenting and the business and the financial <laughs> relationships that we have by letting go of the romantic one? Because we don't want to be bad parents to our kids. We're both good parents. We're both able to do that right now. But there's a chance that we could destroy all of our different sort of relationships with each other if we don't do this. And so the separation was done as a bit of an experiment of like, you know, maybe if we're separated for a while, we can rebuild and reconnect on other ones. And so that's sort of like the spirit that it was done in. And 
I think after doing that, we realized, no, this is probably better than before. So let's continue going this route. You know, it was not that rational and cool. It was definitely like a lot more, a lot more ups and downs and lots more like really strong emotions sure. in there. But, you know, at the end of the day, like we are here a couple of years later, like we still talk to each other very amicably. We still, you know, love each other. We still are great parents for our kids. So I, on that level, I think it was a success in terms of like, we live in a world now where lots of configurations of relationships are possible. And so we should take advantage of that and be like, okay, well, let's design the relationship that's going to work best for our interests. And if our interests are to keep co-parenting at the level that we are, like we don't want to create this, you know, sort of divide at the level of parenting. So I think that was part of it. Maybe I'm on the more analytical side of this, where I, I would describe it that way. She would probably describe it differently, but that's sort of how I yeah. how I tell it. How did you talk to your kids about it when you came to that decision? Yeah, so we talked to Nico first, had like an hour with him to sort of tell him that I was moving out, and we did this in, in partnership with our therapist too. Like, how do we talk to our kids about this? Because sure. this is where we could really mess things up. Um, and you, it's not like you have a lot of experience in this area, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> there's only like yeah. all the all the experience comes from like pop culture and just like bad right. like bad representations right. and fiction and, and TV and movies. Because my parents never separated, and Kellyanne's parents separated when she was like three. And mm. her mom remarried. So like it was different. So having that conversation was that like, took a couple of weeks of planning, <laughs> like both on terms of like, how do we know what to say? And then how do we do this without like triggering ourselves somehow throughout this conversation so that we can, I think we overprepared for it. Honestly, like Nico's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, no. Louis was more confused because he was younger and didn't see as much of the conflict that we were having. So Nico would be like, oh yeah, yeah I see you guys fight. No, I see. Right. Whereas Louis is more like, doesn't. So he was more confused. He probably took more talking to, because like, even after I moved out, he's like, why can't you move back in? And it's really hard to explain to a four-year-old these kinds of things, especially when you're trying to protect him from him <laughs> also. Mm -hmm. So it's opened it and closed a couple of times over the last couple of years. I think he gets it now. I, I mean, now the memories are further in the past. So it seems like on addition to the pandemic and everything else, it's sort of been turned upside down. Like this is just another, mm -hmm. there was actually a funny moment about a year into it where he's like, well, when are we going to get our next house? Like, yeah. Cause like we were in one house, then we had two houses and now I want a third house. So I was like, that's not how it works where like every year it's a new house. <laughs> oh, kids are so, it's so funny how their brain works though. Right? Like, yeah. To him, that's very logical. Like we're mm -hmm. just accumulating houses as we yeah, go. Yeah, this is about like expanding the empires. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be that fortunate and have multiple yeah. real estate, multiple houses in Berkeley. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all this. By the way, this is stuff's not particularly easy to to talk about or share. I wanted to ask you if you had any advice for anybody who might be going through something like this themselves. I obviously. Like you mentioned, you don't have any real experience in this the first time you're going through it. So, you know, if you could kind of rewind time and talk to Buster two years ago, you know, what would that conversation be like? What would you tell yourself? Yeah, I would say joint therapy is a really good idea. <laughs> like, every, like regardless of everything else that was happening, like having something stable, like another perspective to access was like really crucial because 
So much of this stuff ties deeply into our senses of identity and our senses of self-worth and like judgment and like it can get and mental health, like all these things that I think I feel lucky to have, you know, not everyone can afford it, but like, I think there are options, you know, some therapists will do signing scales and that kind of thing. But if the (laughs) resistance to therapy is about the purpose and not the cost, then I would say like, find somebody. (laughs) And then another big part of it is this tendency for us to always sort of look ahead and sort of not be able to imagine different situations and to look behind and to think that everything that happened was inevitable. So I think both of those things are dangerous. Like when we were in talking about separation, separation wasn't inevitable. It was one of many options. You know, we could have moved somewhere else. We could have changed living arrangements. We could have like hired a nanny. Like there's many options. So you have to think that like the time spent working through these options wasn't time wasted because of where you ended up. Because there's a tendency to think like, well, we ended up here all those years of therapy were wasted, right? Which is not, it's not true. It's like, you don't know the outcome. And part of the hope is that you find the outcome that fits the situation best. And sometimes that takes time and it might take time to even be able to see it because there's all of these different, like when you're in the moment, it feels permanent. It feels disastrous. It feels like everything is falling apart, but that's not where you're going to be always. And so I think trusting that time changes things, that space changes things, that different dynamics can be established. I would tell myself that more. I think that was something that is really hard to do in the moment. At least for me, it was to feel like that there is only one outcome and that everything that doesn't acknowledge that as quickly as possible was a waste. And I think I sort of alluded at this, but I think that we should embrace this opportunity in our culture to have many different kinds of relationships with people. I'm not saying that that means you have to be like polyamorous or queer or to have like multiple part, I don't know, whatever, like there's, it sort of alludes to like these, all these different configurations that can be, you know, maybe off-putting or scary to some people, but I think that those are just some, and you're going to find the, the options that feel right for you, and you're going to find options that don't feel right for you. But the only way to really understand what those options are is to be open to them, to try experimenting with different things and seeing if they stick or not, because it's not just together or apart. There's lots of other options, and our culture today is also like open to these other options. So that's a good advantage that we have that we should use wow. even if you end up going down one of the more tried and true paths that's really fantastic advice thank you for sharing that so i wanted to ask one more thing about you know partnership and your former partner and you talked about how you have some different parenting styles and kind of like how you approach different situations can be different but on the opposite end of that spectrum what's something that the two of you are like in absolute lockstep agreement on is there something where the, like the two of you have never deviated or, or never sort of disagreed on a particular aspect of parenting or approach or something like that? I mean, I think treating the children with respect and love, like yeah. I think that's one thing, you know, even a couple of generations ago, that wasn't always the case. So I don't want to yeah. say that that's obvious. Putting the children first, you know, I put the children ahead of my career in a lot of ways. I would never think that having a career is more important <laughs> than yeah. like being a good parent. And I think 
that my ex also believes that creating sort of an environment where they can explore things outside of their, like, even like, this is like a very Bay area thing, but like not locking them in, into gender roles <laughs> has never been an area of contention for us. Cause we're just like, you know, yeah, I, I've, I don't got to figure it out. There's no, there's a, yeah, like yeah. there's just way too many options out there. And like the sign gender role stuff is just very, I don't know, just, it never resonated with me. So why would I project mm -hmm. this onto my kids? Yep. Yeah. So those kinds of things I think have always been pretty easy to, to do. Yeah. Like yeah. being healthy, being providing social, you know, engagement. Yeah. Those are all, there's, there's a lot. And I think that's always yeah. been, you know, even in the worst of times, it's always been like, you know, 90% of the things we agree on. It's, it's the 10% mm -hmm. that differs that, you know, some of those might be deal breakers, but like, it's still only a small percentage. Yeah. You mentioned putting your family first, putting your kids first. I wanted to ask a bit about how you managed such a complex set of demands on your time when you were working at a fast growing startup, trying to write a book that you had a, a publisher backing, right? That they had sort of optioned it or paid for mm -hmm. it, trying to raise two young kids, trying to maintain a relationship with your then partner at the time. How did you do it? Or didn't you? Because I could see how overwhelming that, that that could all be. I think I had to always remember that these were my choices, right? I made all okay. these choices. I can change my choices. Or I could choose not to. Like There were many times where I was like, well, you know, I'm waking up at 6 a.m. every morning, making breakfast for kids, walking them to school, going to work, taking like an hour and a half to get to work, working, coming back late after dinner, bathing them, reading to them, putting them to bed having 15 minutes to myself, going to sleep and starting the whole thing over again. And then like when work becomes difficult or, you know, our partnership becomes difficult or sleep becomes difficult or there's fights or there's, you know, someone gets sick or, you know, anything happens and such like this dynamic and like where are the resources going to come for that? And for me, the key thing is to like remembering like if something is wrong here, I can choose to change it. Right. Like the only reason I'm not changing it is because I think this is the best configuration. <laughs> and so right. it came down to like, well, this isn't the best configuration. The best configuration is for me to quit my job or the best configuration is for us to move somewhere where we don't have to, you know, pay as much of a mortgage or the best configuration right. is for us to get no pair, which we did, or the best configuration is, you know, there's just like lots of things that can change. And so it's never helpful for me to think like, oh, things suck woe is me. It's more like things mm -hmm. suck. What have I created for myself and how do I get myself out of this? Yeah. Especially when in partnership, it's like, we created this, we can uncreate it. We can, you know, we can change things. Can't uncreate a child, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it kind of got them for at least 18 years. So yeah. So yeah. like, but we chose that. Like, so we have mm -hmm. to deal with the consequences of the choices we've made. And we didn't always know what those consequences would be, but we, sure chose to allow consequences to happen. And I think remaining in that sense, ringing with that sense of agency of like, okay, well, however bad this is, we have the tools to hopefully try something else if it's not working. And maybe that allowed me to burn myself out more than I normally would, because I was like, well, I'm choosing this burnout. So maybe it won't, because like kids change all the time. Like I always thought like, as soon as Louis passed a certain age, it's going to get easier again. And it has, 
but I didn't predict the pandemic. I didn't predict the other things that. Right. Um, right. So yeah, it's just half of it is agency. Half of it is being willing to adapt your plan when circumstances change around you. Yeah. What's a mistake that you've made as a, a father, something where you're like, in hindsight, I definitely should not have done that. Or something oh you learned today or yeah. ever. <laughs> <laughs> I think even just saying that, I think is, you know, it's, we all, I mean, mistakes are very common in parenting, right? There's no, again, you're doing everything for the first time, right? You personally. So yeah, I love that today. Uh, Probably made 10 yeah. this more since this morning. Yeah. I, I think a lot of my mistakes are about trying to, I don't know if a lot of parents do this or not, but it's hard to model the brain of a child into your own head. So that, like when you're making decisions that impact them, it's really hard to know, like, where are they really? Like, what is, what are they really feeling right now? And so sometimes I have a tendency to, especially with my older kid, to think he's more mature than he is, you know, that he's not just 12, that he's 20 or something and be like, okay, well, he still needs lots of physical affection. He still needs lots of soothing and like, especially he was six when Louis was born. He remembers having a lot more of my attention. Yeah. So I have to remember that that is a difficult situation and to remember to include him as much, like in a lot of ways, sometimes even more than the younger one, because he remembers how it was different. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one, you know, tending to prioritize the youngest one over because like his needs are just so much louder. I, I do think about that a lot and returning to questions, like not just assuming that one conversation about something is enough, like having multiple yeah. conversations about things, especially like, you know, there's always something new, like coming to, to awareness about death, coming to awareness about like the state of our relationships, coming to awareness about his own, like sort of place in the world it takes a lot of not like just and this is a, a thing yeah. that is just true about humans. I think we're like, we just require lots of repeat communication. So those are mistakes I've made. I think, think about, you know, it's hard to say, like a lot of them are mistakes I'm okay having made because you know, I'm also just a human person that, you know, can't be perfect. So things about knowing the right way to sleep train Louis, like, I, I don't know, did we go in too hard with that? Cause like we did nothing with Lico knowing when to intervene, when sharing isn't happening with friends. Like, when do you draw the line and say like disciplining around like violence and like hitting people or yelling or saying mean things? Like, I don't think I get any of it right. So I'm always just like course correcting one direction or the other. And anytime like a friend or another parent comes over and they see like the chaos of my house, like, it's like, oh, maybe I am doing things wrong. <laughs> I gotta like rethink this, but it's more like mistakes of overcorrection or undercorrection. As long as I'm still trying to correct in the right direction, I, I give myself a break, but. That's good. Yeah, I think one lesson I'd take away from that is as a parent, you've gotta be kind to yourself, right? Like if anyone tells you that they've perfectly figured it out, they're probably lying. <laughs> or at least yeah. they they don't remember. They don't remember because it's, a, it's very rarely perfection. So you have moments yeah. of it where you're like, wow, everything's working out. This is great. Yeah. And that usually lasts for a very short amount of time. Yeah. You just got to appreciate it. And while it lasts, yeah. <laughs> like this is great. Okay, good. What's going to happen next? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
All right. Well, this has been really fun. I want to get into our final, our, our, the rapid fire round, ask you a bunch of questions. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you this question. So try to get to it as quickly as can. Here we go. What is the most indispensable parenting product you have ever purchased? White noise machine. <laughs> oh, awesome. What is the most useless parenting product you've ever purchased? All those burp clouds, I think. <laughs> What's your go-to dad wardrobe? I think you have a fairly <laughs> non-traditional dad dad wardrobe, but um, yeah, I don't have a dad wardrobe. I just you know have a I just wear my clothes. <laughs> yeah, you like flowered shirts. I know that much. I about do. You. I do. Yes. Very cool oh. pattern shirts. Do you ever drop one of your kids as a baby? Yes, I dropped them both. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Equal opportunity dropper. How many parenting books do you have in your house? These days, fewer, but I probably have bought about 20, 30 of them. And how many of them have you actually read cover to cover? Probably half of them, 15, I would say. That's pretty great. Yeah. Most of them before even my first child was born. I think I did uh, all the, <laughs> yeah. as soon as they were born, I was like, I don't have time for this. But yeah. Yeah. I referenced them. There's a lot of like reference books. Yeah. What has been your favorite age for your kids is there a favorite age that you yeah had? yeah i think like three to six is probably like the most precious I, I appreciate them all but yeah three to six when they're like curious and weird and they still fall for all your mm -hmm. drinks yeah i think that's good yeah. what about <laughs> the opposite of that what's your least favorite age i think the newborn zero to one phase like you know they, mm -hmm. there's it's, it's a novel experience but like you know, I don't need to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you like sleep too much. <laughs> yes. What about screen time? Good, bad, indifferent? Can all the above. I definitely tend to allow more screen time than most parents. But I think engaging with them where they are, is good. Awesome. Pro. Okay. And then what's your take on minivans? Minivans? Man, I would <laughs> like one. I would like a Eurovan. <laughs> That's my, but yeah. I'm, I'm pro. Okay. Anything that gets people from point A to point B, that works. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope you had a good time doing this. Yep, I learned. Um, I really am so appreciative of your candor and just willingness to do this with me. Good to have this topic, you know, out there. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Buster Benson. If you enjoyed today's episode of The Startup Dad, please subscribe, share, and leave me a review. It'll help other people find this podcast. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. I'm Adam Fishman, the host of Startup Dad. You can stay up to date on all my thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.